Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you as we dive into God's Word this morning. Our scripture passage comes from the book of Isaiah once again. And if you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we have been sort of working our way through Isaiah 2 and 3, which are parts of Isaiah that are are full of judgment. They're full of some fairly difficult things, some things that we don't really wake up and say, this is what I want to hear. And, and yet they've been really instructive for us as they show the things that we trust, the things that we hope in, and how many of those things are just completely flawed. The foundation of them is completely a crumbling foundation. The good news for us this morning is as we come to Isaiah 4, we see one of these moments where Isaiah brings hope. He brings real tangible hope. In the midst of all of this talk about the day of the Lord and all this judgment that is coming, he shifts our focus for these next verses to the hope of what is to come, a rich hope, a hope that is lasting, a hope that is eternal, and a hope that isn't just some sort of distant hope that has nothing to do with today, but a hope that is for you and I here today. This is not some interesting historical sort of sidebar in the book of Isaiah, but it is hope for you and I. So would you stand this morning as we hear this hope? Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, as we come to these words from the book of Isaiah, would you use them powerfully this morning? Would they be an encouragement to us? Would they be a recalibration of our hope? Would they expose where we have put our hope and, and point us to where our hope truly lies on this branch that is Jesus? The only way that our filth and our sin is dealt with is through the work of your graciousness, the work of your Son. Lord, would you remind us of that? Would you teach us this truth this morning? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you are a daylight savings time fan or not. Maybe you woke up and you're relishing this extra hour of rest that you had, or maybe you're one of those people that is going to complain about daylight savings time for the next month and how it's messed you up and your schedule's off. Um, Whichever whichever camp you, you, you lie in, you know what it's like, though, to sort of walk around your house and look at a clock and sort of ask the question, is that actually what time it is? Right? Is that clock right? And your car clock will probably, it's probably right now because you haven't changed it since, since last time. We, we don't change these things and we sort of walk around and we're, we're, we're sometimes a little confused for a day or two about what, what time it is. Um, and and that's, that's, that's fine, that's normal. This, this text is going to talk about a day. It's going to talk about a day and a time. And there's a, there's a sense that when we hear this word, we're not 100% sure what, what time it is. Where do we fit into what's going on here? What, what is God doing in the world? When I was in, in college, I went to a school that was right on the time zone line between Central and Eastern time. 
Now, this was sort of earlier days of cell phones, and periodically your phone would actually connect to a cell tower in the other time zone, and so your, your, your phones weren't actually a very reliable method of, of telling time. It would fluctuate between Eastern and Central time. It was really convenient if you had an 8 a.m. class. You could just plead that your phone had switched time zones and your alarm didn't go off. Um, I bring that up because just like we're experiencing right now with sort of the time zone or time, we're not sure exactly what time it is, I think spiritually, this text reveals that sometimes we don't know what time it is. Spiritually, we don't have a good awareness of what God is doing and what, what time it is. I actually came across a, a diagnosis term for this, dyschronometria. It's a sense of not telling time accurately. Sometimes people have this, some, some brain, some damage after a stroke or something, and they, they don't know how, really how to deal with time. Uh, they think they've been doing something for five minutes and it's been three hours, or they've been doing something for a short period of time and it feels like, like longer. And sometimes spiritually this text, I think, can, can put us in a place like that. We see this day, we see some hope coming, and we say, when, when is that? Where, do, where does this fit into what is happening in, in our world now? Where, where do we fit into this big story that this passage is, is telling us? Chances are you walked in here this morning, whether you articulated it or not, looking for hope. Maybe your week was difficult. Maybe it was disappointing. Maybe it was just one of those normal frustrating weeks of school. Maybe it was job frustration, relational frustration, sort of just looking at the world frustration. And you came in here looking for, for hope. And the good news is that there is hope here, but we need to see how this hope un unfolds in this passage in order to see how this hope is not just some distant historical note, but hope for you and I. So how does this hope unfold? We see very simply that it begins to unfold as a beautiful and fruitful hope. Look with me at verse, verse 2. The context leading up to this has again been this idea that there has been uh, Judah and God's people that have been unfaithful, and there's this judgment that has been prophesied of things being taken away and very difficult things. And, and so all of that context leads to this declaration in verse 2, in that day. Now, you've read the rest of the passage. We've read it. You know that hope is coming. But up till this point, when God has talked about his day, it has been a day of, of judgment. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, you see a note there where it is, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Later in verse 20 of chapter 2, the day of the Lord has been a time where God's sort of majesty appears and his people go and hide in caves. They're terrified. Chapter 3 has told us that sort of in this day of the Lord, God has taken away support and supply. He's taken away the finery of his people. It's been not something to relish. The day of the Lord, as we hear it even here, would have God's people bracing to say, what, what more is coming? And yet, in this moment, there is this day where we see the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. It's a note of surprise. The day of the Lord has is, is got some, some grace, some mercy, some, some gloriousness and beauty attached to it. And there's also some strangeness. The branch. What is, what is this branch? What is, what is being shown here? Why is this branch, branch glorious? We need to pause for a moment and consider this day of the Lord. Maybe if you've read the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, or just been around the church for a while, it's probably something you've heard, the Day of the Lord. What does that actually mean? Well, we see it used various ways throughout, throughout Scripture. It's a day where God comes and is faithful to His covenant. It's a day where God comes and deals with His people. As we've seen, sometimes that is in, in judgment as He sort of exposes their sins and deals with it. 
But ultimately, this day points not just to a day of judgment, but underlying that is God being gracious towards his covenant people. The day of the Lord, as we see here, and as we look at all of this sort of with the New Testament informing it, is the day that Jesus comes. It's his first coming, and it's his second coming. It's the day where where Christ comes and finally does all that God had promised he will do. And along the way, there are various days of the Lord that sort of clarify that. But here in this text, it is the great day of the Lord where the branch of the Lord shall be fruitful and glorious. So who is this branch? Well, we saw a little bit of that. Maybe if you were listening earlier in our service, we read from Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. And it was a picture of this branch that is the righteousness of Israel. It's the righteousness of God's people. And as we look a little further into Isaiah, we get another picture of this this branch. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, what is that talking about? Well, it's talking about Jesus. This branch, as we look at all the references to it, and we won't have time to get through every single one in, in the Old Testament, New Testament, but this branch is Jesus. God uses this image of a branch as something that is growing, that is expanding, that is sort of breaking in here, and it is Jesus who does that. It is the Messiah. Now, God's people, when they read this in the days it was given to the prophet Isaiah, may not have figured out all of the details there. But we, as New Testament believers who have all of God's canon of Scripture, can see clearly what this is is talking about. It's been described this way in the Old Testament. It's as if the lights are off, but all the furniture of the Messiah is sort of sitting there, and you bump into it periodically. But in the New Testament, the light comes on, and you see all that God has given. And that's how we look at this passage, with the light of the New Testament shining in, and we see this branch of the Lord that is Jesus. And how is he described? As beautiful and glorious. Those are rich words. Beautiful, glorious. It's interesting that those words are used to describe Jesus, this branch here. If we look back in um, Isaiah 3 and verse 19, God's people, the daughters of Zion, have been looking for beauty. They've been looking for beauty in all their finery, in all of those things that God takes away. But here on this day of the Lord, after God has taken away those things that they are clinging to, hoping to, looking for beauty and gloriousness in, what does God do? He gives them true beauty. He gives them true glory and and this beautiful picture of the Lord. Now, this beauty is not one of sort of physical beauty, it would seem, because later in Isaiah, it tells us that Jesus doesn't have anything to sort of attract us to him from his physical appearance. And yet, in his very essence, in who he is, there is this beauty and this glory. That's what breaks in on the scene. In this midst of all of this sort of despair and hope and ruin of God's people and their sin, the branch breaks in. And there is this beautiful and a fruitful hope. The last or the second part of verse two there adds that the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now it's possible that that's just talking about sort of bountiful harvests and sort of a return to things, but as as they should be. But this language of pride and honor for that really, I think, directs us to see that the fruit of the land here is again reminding us of, of Jesus, the one who is a root who grows up out of Israel even from the stump of Jesse, the one who is the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. All of what they have lost, all that they have been looking for, all the hope, all of the things that they thought would sort of prop them up from their self-reliance to their idolatry to their finery, all of those things that we too look for and say, "That, that will give us some hope. All of that is taken away. And in its place is something that more than supplies all of their hopes, 
all of their needs, this beautiful and glorious Savior who is their pride and honor. This is what happens when when Jesus sort of breaks into the story, and this is really what we see here, that we have an actual hope, a hope and and something that is not just sort of a, a distant hope, but a hope that is connected to sort of the reality of what God is doing in this world. I read recently from a a theologian, James K.A. Smith, who said that our hope must always have expectancy and dependency. I think we get that intuitively. We get that our hope is always expectant. All of you walked in here today with some expectations, some hopes, not necessarily about the service, but just about the world, about your lives. You have things you hope for, things that you're expectantly waiting. And And our expectation is even framed through some of the things that come later in this passage. Hopes of this new Jerusalem, hopes of God's presence and his care and his provision, all of those things. And that's right to have that expectation. But it also needs to be dependent on something that actually can bear up that expectation. And that's the good news here is that what undergirds all of this hope in this passage is this beautiful and glorious branch, God who comes in the person of Jesus to redeem all things. That is what our hope is based on. That is where our hope rests confidently and expectantly. And so we're invited to, to view history this way. Really, it's, it's highlighting here this moment of the day of the Lord where Jesus comes and will come again, but it, it's so integral, so foundational that all of the rest of our world sort of falls in place around this day of the Lord. This day of the Lord is what sets the clock on all of human history. It's the day of the Lord here and Jesus coming that reorients all that we think and do in this, in this world. I don't know how many of you took driver's ed. Probably a lot of you just were throwing the keys and said, go figure it out. Um, but, but now we do driver's ed, and that's sort of how we, how we learn to drive. And I, I went to driver's ed as a good student, hands at 10 and 2, and, and ready to go. Um, but I, my, my driver instructor was this uh, British expat, a retired naval officer, who, as you can imagine, was fairly strict in sitting in the seat beside me. And as many new drivers do, you get on the road and you're doing everything sort of right, but you, you're constantly correcting, right? You're overcorrecting. You go a little bit this way and you got to turn the wheel back and you're just not going straight. Well, my driver instructor fixed this in one second. He said, look in front of you. And he pointed very dramatically down the road and said, look there. And so I started looking not 10 feet in front of the vehicle, but 100 feet in front of the vehicle. And what happened? I straightened out and I drove just fine. I think there's a spiritual application for that that reality, I think many of us don't have our attention, our direction set on the day of the Lord. What, is this, what does this look like practically? Well, it, it means that all of our hopes are set on what's going to happen five years from now. All of our hopes are set on what's going to happen Tuesday. All of our hopes are set on what's going to happen in six months. Whatever you've sort of built your life and your hope around, you, you, you're directing all of your attention, all of your ambition, all of what you have towards that end. And what happens is, is you and I begin sort of being like that new driver, where we go this way, and then we go this way, and we, we hope this, and so we kind of veer off course here, or we, we hope that, and we go that direction. This passage reminds us that this is where our hope lies, in the day of the Lord. And as we correct our vision, as we sort of get that in the forefront, looking down the road, as it were, towards what Christ is doing and has done, that's when our lives begin to reflect the hope. It's when our hopes aren't misaligned and sort of tossing to and fro by every new fad, every new fear. And it reminds us that, that we're called to follow and trust that, not to sort of force God's kingdom into the way we want it right now, and not to just abandon hope and say, well, it's all just future hope, but to trust what God is doing here and now, working all things toward his good and glorifying, 
glorious end. That's the hope that we have. That's the invitation we have in this, is to view time correctly, to view time in light of what God is doing in the normal moments of our lives, in conversations, in school projects, in whatever God has placed in your life this week. In those moments, calibrate those things to the hope that is eternal. Not discounting everything that happens now, but, but basing everything that we do in light of that ultimate hope and seeing that as what is truly beautiful. Not being like these daughters of Zion that we saw last week that, that focus all of their attention on the beauty and the physical here and now, but seeing what is ultimately true and beautiful and glorious is what God is doing, what God has begun and what God will finish doing in and through the work of His, His Son, Jesus. So how do we participate in this hope? Well, it comes in verse 2, as there is this washed and holy people. In verse 2, we see this language of survivors of Israel. Now, who are these survivors? Literally, it's a sense of those who have escaped, those who have made it, those who have not been sort of undone by all of the the judgment that has come here. How do they escape? Well, verse 3 begins to tell us, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. There's a beautiful specificity here in the text. It's not talking about this sort of general group of survivors who made it because they were skillful or they just had a little bit more luck or something like that. No, it says he. It's, 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 it's individual. He who remains. He who is left. That is the one who will be called holy. Called holy. It's, a, it's an act of, of declarative holiness. One who is called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. That's, that's how this works, this picture of, of how all of this happens, how they survive, it's, it's because of holiness. It's not because of their, their skill or their personal righteousness. In fact, what we see here is the same that we see back in Isaiah 1, verse 9, where it says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, how are there some survivors? How are there some people left? And really, it's just talking about God's people. How are there some left? Well, Romans 11 reminds us that there is a remnant chosen by grace. That is what this is talking about. It's grace that has preserved these people. It is grace, God's provision for his covenant people that he is eternally securing throughout space and time, calling them to himself, drawing them into the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is because of God's God's grace. They are holy, called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem recorded for life in Jerusalem. This is this language that we see. It begins as far back as Exodus and goes all the way through Revelation where there is this concept of our names being recorded in a book, recorded for life. In Luke 10, verse 20, Jesus tells his, the people that are listening that they should rejoice because their names are written in heaven. It's the same sort of language here, recorded for life in Jerusalem. I love the way it's phrased there, recorded for life. Not just recorded for sort of a, an existence, but recorded for true life, for life in Jerusalem. And this is the, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where our lives are directed, where we are recorded, where we belong, where our life is found. Life in Jerusalem. Life as it should be. That is what is held out as hope for us today. How does this even further happen? Well, in verse 4, we see that the Lord shall wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and he has cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. Who washed? Who cleansed? It's God. God worked, and any sort of uh, Old Testament person reading this would would know from the rest of what God has taught them that, that this atonement, this washing, this removal of filth is only God who does this. 
It's not that they had some, some ritual that would, would perfectly do this. All of the rituals pointed to what God would do, that he had washed away their filth. That filth is really a, a, a strong image, sort of all the muck and mire of life. These daughters of Zion had sort of been representative of, of Judah, and, and they have dressed themselves in finery. All the things that they think will make them beautiful and all of those things. And in reality, he's saying, apart from this washing, they are in their filth. And so it is God who does these things, the God who steps in and brings us about through the washing, through the declaration of being holy, and also by this spirit. At the end of verse 4, it says this, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. It's looking partially back to all that has happened in sort of God's sort of exposing of their sin. But I think with New Testament eyes, we can actually see a parallel to what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3 and verse 11. He says that he came to baptize for, the, for, for sort of the, the, per, the preparing baptism, but who comes after him? Well, it's Jesus, the one who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I think there's a note of what is often called regeneration, the work that the Spirit must begin in us. In order to be saved, in order for this wonderful gift of grace to be given to us, the Spirit begins a work in us, regenerates our hearts so that we turn to God in faith. That's what this is reminding us of, that it's pointing us to with New Testament eyes that all of what is declared here is really just the gospel. It's saying, how do you have hope? How does all of this happen? Well, it's, it's through the gospel that we know. And it's representing it to us yet again in Scripture and saying this is where your true hope lies. And there is a, a certainty, a, a confirmation here in what God has done. Uh, if you've been invited to anything, let's just say in the last 10 years, at some point in the last 10 years, somebody has probably invited you with an evite. You get this email, and it says, here's a party coming. And, you know, when these things first came, I was like, how impersonal is this? This is terrible. We should just write cards to people. But I, I really like evites now. You know why? Because, well, they're simple and all of that. But when you show up at an event, and this has happened to me more than once, and you show up, and there, there don't seem to be a lot of cars around, and you get a little nervous, am I here at the right time, at the right place? And so what do you do? At least this is what I do. I open up my phone, find the email, find the evite, right date, right time, right place. Okay, I'll get out of my car and I'll go in. There's a small note of that comfort that I get from an evite totally blowing up here in this passage where we have the comfort of having our names recorded in the book of life. That that's actually, that's comforting. I think it's comforting partially. God doesn't need a book, right? God can remember. He's not sort of thumbing through the pages and being like, who are you again? All right, okay, page 27. Yes, you're in. That's not how it works. It's, it's in a sense, I think, even for us to know some security, some tangibleness that our, our sense of our salvation is secured, recorded for life. There's no sort of second-guessing it. There's no losing it. It is, it is secure in and through what Christ has done, what this branch has done recorded for life in Jerusalem. It's a simple reminder, and that's not a simplistic thing to say, but it is simple, that we need Jesus. That we need Jesus. That's what this passage reminds us. What gets us out of all of what we've seen in the last few chapters in Isaiah? Well, it's Jesus. It's the redemption that he comes and brings about. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that, that operates and does all of these things, and that should give us great hope, great confidence. Yes, there's a sense that we ask ourselves when we, when we read this, this picture, are we ready for this life? Are our names recorded in this book? 
It is God's choice, but it's also our response to what he has done that moves us into this new reality of this heaven and new heaven and this new earth that is just touched on here in this, this passage. I think sometimes we might hear this, though, and we say, well, great, there's some future hope, and I'll just kind of grind it out here for the rest of my life. It's going to kind of not be fun, but I'm going to just grin and bear it, and, and, and sometime it'll, it'll all be great in the sweet by and by, to use that, that old phrase. And while that's a wonderful hope, I think this passage, and not just this passage, but how Isaiah moves from this passage forward, reminds us that we're actually called to live all of our life in light of what happens here. That actually where this this glorious hope really becomes real and tangible is as we take it into the places God has called us to. I've been reading recently some, some of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's works. Maybe you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a martyr for the church uh, at the end of World War II in the German Reich. Near the end of his life, as he was in prison, he was writing more about how his faith became more tangible. And he wrote this uh, in the last months of his life. He said, this worldliness, or he, he said he grew into a this-worldliness Christianity. Living in the world, he notes, we learn to have faith. Living in the world, we learn to have faith. He's saying, how does all of this that we see in this passage become real and tangible? Well, by actually going and taking this hope and trying it out in the places God has called us. In parenting, in your job, in your relationships, in those things, grounding all of your frustration and your disappointment in the reality that the day of God has come and is coming again fully and finally. Grounding all of that and, and growing in your faith as we learn what it's like to live in a world that is often confusing. In a world where sometimes we really just don't quite know what time it is. But we take this out and we begin to see what God is doing as Isaiah will call us to action in the chapters ahead. So where does all of this day lead us? Verses 5 and 6 give us a new and glory-filled place. It says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. And over the glory there, there will be a canopy. Now, you might hear notes of the Exodus, the Exodus story, right, where God led his people with fire and cloud. It's reminding us of that. But did you note in verse 5, at the start of that, it says the Lord will create. It's more than just restoring and going back. It's actually something new and better. God is creating something. And this word create is a significant word in Scripture. It's, it's used only of God, only of God and his creative work. Yes, you and I can create sort of as sort of a secondary creation, but true actual creation is only done by God. And this is what he does. He creates over the whole side of Mount Zion. Now, it's not talking about sort of Mount Zion as this special place, but sort of the, the very mountain where all people will come to, as we saw in Isaiah 2. All of God's people sort of flocking together in this new heavens and new earth. And over all of that, there is this cloud. It is God's presence and over all the glory there, there will be a canopy. All that glory is, is God's glory, but it's also, it seems from the language, God's glory reflecting from us back to him. And all of that picture together there under a canopy. Now, what's the canopy? You might hear that and say, it's just a nice tent, some shade, it's great. But I think it's a significant aspect to the text. We don't have time to get into all the sort of the cross-references that show this, but both from the book of Joel and the book of Psalms, we see that the canopy here is more than likely a, a wedding canopy. It's not just a simple canopy, but it is a, a marriage canopy where God finally comes and meets with his people, where the bride of Christ comes 
dressed for her bridegroom. And all of that glory is tangible there. This is the wonderful picture of what we have, the wonderful hope that we have. It's not secondary, it's not just some distant hope, but it's something that penetrates even now and gives us this refuge, verse 6. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. You might hear that and say, well, that's, that's great. I've got an umbrella for those things in a warm house. What the language is doing there is it's, it's saying rain and shine. It's sort of it's the extremes, and everything in between is covered. It's God's care for us, not just in the extremes, but even in the normal things in between, his shelter and his protection that his very presence gives. Revelation 7 and verse 14 talks about God's very sheltering presence that is anticipated as all the multitudes come to him. And that shelter and that refuge break in now. They're not just some different, distant protection, but it's the same work of the Spirit, the same work of Jesus that we have now. Real shelter, real protection, real refuge in the storm, as it were. And so this passage reorients again our hope to what is coming. I mentioned earlier that uh, dyschronometria syndrome, and so I, I, I read an interview of somebody who, who has this syndrome. She had a stroke and has had trouble with sort of time-telling since then. And the interviewer asked the question I think all of us would have in that moment and said, well, why don't you just get a watch? Why don't you just read you know, your watch? You don't know what time it is, just, just check. And this is what this individual with this syndrome said. He says, oh, if only that it was that easy. You don't believe a watch that's telling you the wrong time. I mean, you know it's impossible that it's that time. It's impossible every single time. It's impossible that you've got it wrong. I think some of us are like that. We might look at a passage like this and say, I, I, don't, I don't buy it. The world looks too far gone. The world looks too difficult. My life looks too difficult. The good news of the gospel is that the gospel tells us that we often have the wrong time. Often when we look at the world, we have the, the wrong time. We don't see things through a scriptural lens. We don't see things through this true hope that is coming. The invitation of Isaiah 4 is to, to see what God is doing, to see where our hope lies, to see where our correct time zone is, as it were, and to move to a gospel astonishment. There's, there's not a lot of application in this passage up till this point, is there? But it should move us to great astonishment at what God has done. Great astonishment that he comes and dwells with his people, covers them, welcomes them even as his, his bride. And so we live our lives differently because of that, because this date is set on the calendar, so to speak. We don't know the day, we don't know the time, but it is set. God knows when he is coming to fulfill all that we see here. And because that is true, we, we act differently. We live differently. Our hopes, our priorities, all of those things become reshaped and reformed by what God is doing. Think of it this way. It's November. Have you started Christmas shopping? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But you know that December 25th is on the calendar. And whether that's going to be a great day or a difficult day for you, you're beginning to see it and you're beginning to act differently because of that coming day your hopes, your joys, your music that you listen to or don't listen to, your purchasing habits, all of those things, your calendar, all of those things begin changing, don't they? Because of a date that's set on the calendar. It's really what this passage is calling us to do. It's saying, here is the great day. It's set. God is coming. This is where your hope lies. And now you have refuge. And now you have shelter. Now you have true hope. And that permeates every facet of our lives. The things that we find discouraging, the things that we don't quite understand are all 
brought in and sort of put in the perspective of what God is doing here. So what do we do with this passage? Well, we put our hope in God because his great and glorious day is good for us and it will be a beautiful and joyous hope for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, we need, I need a passage like this to show where true hope lies. Lord, so many counterfeit hopes are thrown up in front of us. So many concerns we have need to be brought in line to what God is saying here. This passage is not, Lord, dismissing what we fear, but it's showing where our true hope lies. Would you, by the power of the Spirit, work these truths deeply into our hearts this week? That they wouldn't fall on deaf ears or deaf hearts, but that you, by the power of your Spirit, would make them powerfully effective towards being transformed more into the image of our Savior Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.